0: That's a snack pack. That's very nice.
1: Today is Wednesday, February 20th, 2019, time for Episode 75 of the Barnhart Podcast. And Venezuela is on the brink. The glory of Western Hemisphere's socialist experiment has a full-on humanitarian crisis. And now the the additional complication is they have two people claiming to be president and the United States is flying aid down to Colombia right across the border and the only well-fed people in Venezuela are holding guns and saying that aid can't come into Venezuela and all the people in Washington who think socialism is such a great idea. What could possibly go wrong? Are they not paying attention?
0: <laughs> it's not that they're not paying attention; they're probably taking notes and, um, you know, a- a- in admiration of all of this. Um, I think it's I think it's most amusing that you know, anti Pope Bergoglio is has said, or his toadies have said that China is the shining example of, you know, the application of, of the church's social teaching in the world. And I'm just waiting for the proclamation that Venezuela is the, is the perfected application of, um, of the church's economic theory and, and political theory as well. I'm it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Um, it's, it, I don't know, I was, it's, it's strange a few hours ago, just on a, I don't know how I, I got on the tangent, but I was reading something about Jonestown and, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of time. Uh, you know, Venezuela is, is careening towards that. There's, there have been reports out of Venezuela for a long time now that there's been, you know, low level cannibalism going on, things like that and you know you you have to understand that with these political leaders they don't look at that and are they they are not horrified by it all they care about is power and so they look at Venezuela they look at the political class and they say do those people have power or not? And if the answer is yes, and it, you know, I would assume that anyone would have to agree that if you have a political class who is keeping the people in starvation by force of arms and retaining their power that way, that that yes, that is a manifestation of power. And so these these tyrants, these diabolical narcissist psychopath tyrants, all they're all they're looking at, studying, and caring about is, is this power dynamic and are these people in Venezuela, the political class are they retaining power? Are they shaking their fist at you know, the great devil, the United States and are they are they holding all of that at bay? That's what they care about. Other human beings to them are lower than animals. Remember you know, going back to my diabolical narcissism curriculum and the video and everything. Understand these people when they look at other human beings they do not see them or address them or think about them in any way as being human other people to a diabolical narcissist especially a diabolical narcissist psychopath it's it's described as they look at other people and they they see animated cartoons or or something akin to that they don't they don't view other people as being real. So that's why they look at suffering. They look at these things and they simply don't care. And you can map that onto broad spectrum political dynamics as we're seeing in Venezuela, where people are just starving, where Venezuela, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, Venezuela, not too terribly long ago. 20 years ago, Venezuela was called the United States of South America. It, Venezuela and Chile were the two kind of strong powerhouses of South America. Um, and I, I would even say that probably Venezuela was better off than Chile because Venezuela has oil out the wazoo. That is the whole power dynamic there. And so, you know, there was responsible capitalistic um uh harvesting of this oil, oil markets, et cetera, et cetera. And Venezuela the standard of living was extremely high. It was the closest, it was the closest thing you could get to kind of an American standard of living. And of course that has its bad side too, because Venezuela was very, very famous for um, being a world capital of plastic surgery. Um, And so, but, but that's how much, that's how much wealth there was. It was so wealthy that it descended into that kind of decadence where plastic surgery and things like that were um, I'm, I want to say, no, it's Argentina. It's Argentina where plastic surgery has been covered um, by the government for years and years and years. There might have been that dynamic too in Venezuela. I'm not sure. But the point is, it was, it was a healthy, strong economy to the point that it was even crossing over into that level of American decadence with plastic surgery and so forth. Now they're, they're starving to death and they're resorting to cannibalism and things like that. Why? Why? because of Hugo Chavez, and then into Maduro, and who specifically kept Hugo Chavez in power. Hugo Chavez had been driven out and was on an island in the Caribbean off the coast of Venezuela, and who put him back in power, who specifically went in and reinstalled Chavez? It was the Barack Obama regime. That's who did that. So they're looking at these these dynamics and they're they're just saying, okay, what can we learn from this? How can we retain power like this? How can we, you know, collapse something and just coalesce all of this power unto ourselves and then retain it even in the face of this this, uh, you know, massive uprising and resistance? This is going on right now. Certainly there's there's a map of this. In, in the church itself. So you've got the sex abuse, you've got people mad as hell and don't want to take it anymore. And the, the Bergolians in Rome are looking and studying and saying, okay, we've got all these people absolutely up in arms, you know, lynch mobs aren't forming, but people are protesting, the Americans are not shutting up about this. How do we play this? How do we maintain our power? What are the Venezuelans doing? Um, you know, what what do other countries around the world when they fall into this level of catastrophe and chaos, which... Um, clearly bergoglio has has said that chaos is his objective his motto of his anti papacy is aganlio which means literally make a mess but colloquially it translates out of spanish into raise hell that's that's his theme because that is the entire marxist peronist total really just totalitarian and then ultimately freemasonic and satanic objective is to get things into a state of chaos and then you coalesce your power out of that. So, they're studying this with admiration. How is Maduro holding this off? How is this all going to continue to unfold? And there's, you know, there's plenty of example of this in the history of Argentina really, the the entire history of South America is just tumult after tumult after uprising after revolution after regi- after regime change after you know currency reset etc 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 and they're saying how do we keep how do we keep this state of chaos how do we make this work for us how do we even increase our power out of this and um <laughs> it's just every all these confluence of events and how everything re- refers off of each other and touches everything else it's just it's pretty remarkable to watch it in real time. And if it's this interesting in real time, which, you know, in, in a historical context, it's the hardest to perceive things in real time. Imagine the, the field day that historians are going to have with this era that we're living through right now, assuming that the um, immaculate heart does not triumph the, and that there is not a supernatural resolution to all of this. If this continues to grind on, historians are going to have a field day with this.
1: And, of course, this is happening in a country with massive uh, material wealth and mm. natural resources, and so it's not beyond reason to say that if people with the same ideology came into complete power here in the United States or in Western Europe or any place where there is you know significant wealth and natural resources, the same economic soup sandwich and everything that follows from it is going to happen as well. Um, not to spend too much time on Venezuela, although I, I did want to mention you, you talked about uh, cannibalism and all of that. It reminds me of a tweet that uh, – Donald Jr. had, or Donald Trump Jr. saying that uh, comparing America to Venezuela. In America, we walk our dogs. In Venezuela, they eat their dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you have nothing else to to eat, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Anything with
1: four legs is is you know, meats for dinner.
0: (laughs) Yep, it's game. It's fair game. Um, and just the whole thought that oh, it could never happen here. I mean. Talk talk to some of the Venezuelans. There are a lot of Venezuelan expats living in the United States, very successful, very sophisticated culture. Um, and there's a lot of people in Venezuela who are descended from Spanish aristocracy. Apparently, it's just a beautiful country. And a lot of Spanish aristocrats ended up there. And then there's a very very high, sophisticated culture there and ask those people, you know, what was it? What did it go to and how quickly did it happen? And, you know, a lot of people I've been talking now about economic concerns and, and these kind of disastrous things now for goodness going on a a solid decade and people a lot of people point and say oh you're so dumb you you said that you know the whole thing's gonna collapse and, and blah 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 and nothing's happened yet there's still gas at the pumps there's still this there's still that and I just the thing I always remind people of is you know people were pointing and laughing at um at Churchill for for all of the 1930s as you know Churchill is jumping up and down pointing at Germany and pointing at Hitler and saying you guys this is bad this is serious this is going to there's going to be another war and everybody's saying no no after after the great war which we now call world war 1 after the great war we're all exhausted of war nobody wants another war nobody can afford another war there's not going to be another war and Churchill is jumping up and down, screaming and yelling, and being called an alarmist and stupid and, you know, um, trying to make a political career trying to make make hay for himself by fear mongering or whatever. And that was going on literally until the minute that the tanks were Rolled into the Sudetenland, so I mean, or rolled into Poland. However you want to, however you want to delineate the beginning of the war like that. That's when people finally stopped. So you know, the whole Cassandra thing. That's that's the fate of the Cassandra. The Cassandra is going to be wrong for the vast, vast, vast majority. Of of her his or her respective quote unquote career as a Cassandra because it's that it's that long period of time leading up to something, and then when it happens, it happens and it's over quickly. So it being a Cassandra, that's kind of the fate that you're that you have to resign yourself to, is that you're warning and warning and warning, and you're the Jeremiah and et cetera, et cetera. And everybody is gonna point and laugh until the proverbial poo hits the fan. And then there's, there won't even be a thank you. So you're, I mean, it's a completely thankless job. There's not going to be anyone after the poo hits the fan saying, "Oh, thank you so much. You were right." Now just don't. You're not even going to get that. You're not even going to get that. Um, One's reward, if one gets a reward, is in heaven, and that's all one needs to be worried about. So,
1: speaking of uh, the events that led up to or or pre-staged. Or, or happened right before World War II. That was the last time that uh, France and Italy had a spat where they recalled each other's uh, amb- ambassadors. Mm. And that just happened this last week, too.
0: Indeed. A little, uh little war going on there. And you actually alerted me to this. I didn't realize what was going on. Apparently, the French have been monkeying around with the currency in Africa. Um, which is called what was it called? The central.
1: Uh, it's the CFA. It's the. Um, I had to think about this one for a second. A it's central, central. It's probably French. <laughs> well, yeah, it's Central African franc. Cent- central they, they, African they, franc. They do, yeah, yeah. They they order their words weird in French, so it's, it comes out CFA. And there's there's multiple regions of it too. There's the there's an East CFA and West CFA, which are nominally the same value, but you can't exchange one for the other if you mm-hmm. are coming from Europe you can trade euros for CFA but you can't go the other way around with it
0: well that's what my mind is that they're they're pegged to the euro and but you can what you just said is that's so bizarre okay so these these currencies are pegged to the euro you can change euro into central african francs but if you have central african francs you can't change it back into euros so it's like the hotel california you can you can check out anytime you like but you can never leave so i mean what a what a bizarre thing and anyway so the french are are messing around with the central african franc which is then driving <laughs>
1: a lot well of- it's it's not it, it's not so much that they're messing around with it it's when you had the greek banking crisis and it, and to a lesser degree the italian banking crisis uh, to back in 2008 part of the problem was that they were on this currency that they could not uh, inflate and and uh, make monetary policy decisions right. to offset some of the dumb decisions they had made, or just uh, overly aggressive decisions. You know, take it however you want. So in this case, the Central African countries don't have uh, monetary policy tools at their disposal to make changes, whether it be a great idea or not. They are kind of stuck in some of these ways. Whereas some of their neighbors have gotten off of the CFA and they're not doing quite as badly. And this is part of the economic problems happening. One of the uh, um, one one of the analyses that I heard was, some of these people coming up from Africa into Italy, it's simply because they're trying to get away from the bad economic situations in the CFA zone. And this is why the Italians and French are going after each other here, or the, the Italians going after the French, saying, "Hey, you—you you are causing this problem. You know, why, why don't you think about floating the CFA independent from the from the euro? Or because yep. you know, it's it's all run by the the French Ministry, uh, the French um, Economic Ministry. So,
0: yep, I mean Treasury, it, I should say. It just goes back to my whole monetary policy, you know, theory vis a vis subsidiarity." When you look at these currencies, you look at the euro, as we're discussing right now. It isn't just the countries where the euro is. It's every, it's all of these regions where their currency is pegged to the euro. And exactly the same thing can be said of the U.S. dollar, obviously. Um, so, you know, you have these massive, massive currencies that just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we need to be going in exactly the opposite direction. Subsidiarity says break all this stuff out, get Every at least every sovereign nation should be back on its own currency. Let those c- currencies compete against one an- one another. Then beyond that, you know me. I can take this. I can take this all the way back and say no central banks. We don't even need to have um, a. One single currency in in one sovereign nation, you can go back to what the way things were in the United States as recently as the um, what the middle of the 19th century and individual banks are issuing their own currency. And so let let a bank compete against another bank. And then beyond that, I'm even in favor of going back to where we outlaw branch banking, that banks may only have one physical location. Oh, I'm in favor of taking all of this stuff all the way back. And what's absolutely intriguing to me is integrating the the electronic paradigms into this because it puts a completely different spin on it. You say, Ann, this is insane. How can you have all of these... All of these different currencies competing against each other and everybody, you know, shopping around and people constantly change. Oh, that that sounds great to me. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Because if you find out that some absolute psychopath like John Corzine is the president of your bank, you're the one location that you're that you have your um your currency denominated in and you find out the president of the bank is a psycho, you can you can take your money out, go across the street. And you can do this all electronically. So in a sense, what I, what I kind of visualize for the future is not, not a complete abandonment by any means of the electronic paradigms, but putting them to good use and letting that technology enable us to have incredibly robust competitive currency markets and completely getting away from the entire notion of a central bank, a central currency, any of these, any of these mega, mega structures, you want these structures to be as small as possible, and then let them all fight with each other, fight in the sense of compete in the marketplace. And so yeah, I could totally see it that people someday would look at their smartphone and look at what, Um, First State Bank on the corner of Maine and Broadway what their currency is ticking at in real time and then compare that to... Second Farmers Bank at the corner of, you know, Oak Street and Fairlawn Avenue and see what their currency is competing at because none of them have any branches. They're only allowed to have one physical location and just and let the market play out like that. I mean, the the potential here is actually really cool, and it doesn't involve a complete renunciation of the of of tech technology and the strides that we're making. But at the same time, you know, you could, you could then have, and you could know how much gold in reserve does you know, Farmer State Bank at the corner of Maine and Broadway. They they can have it posted and have it publicly available. This is how much gold we have in reserve. This is our, this is, um you know, owners, bank owners equity posted. Here's our total deposits. Here's our loans out. Here's how much money we have backing all of our loans. Hey, look, Farmer State Bank, they have no unsecured loans that aren't backed dollar for dollar. And you could be able, you could see all of this online and then currency issued by that bank would be worth X and it would just, you know, and then you would peg that and you would keep track of, of buying power by, for example, pegging these things and, and this information could all be made available electronically as well to, you know, our currency will buy you X, X gallons of gas per unit or whatever. Um, we'll buy you a kilowatt hour of electricity, whatever it is, you can name all of these physical commodities that are fairly, you know, fairly stable, in a sense, and just be constantly checking what is the buying power of each individual currency. So I think it's, we have to get out of our minds, this false notion that we have to have a central bank, everyone has to be on the same currency, we don't, this is a Freemasonic lie, this is All been inculcated in order to advance this Freemasonic agenda of consolidating everything into a one world government. And as we're now seeing, playing out right before our very eyes in Rome, it's all also intimately tied to the notion of a one world, quote unquote, lowercase r, religion. All of these things coming together, the economics, the politics, and the lowercase r, religion. It's it's all of a piece. It all goes back to Freemasonry, and Freemasonry, of course, is the spawn of Satan. So there you go. There's my rant.
1: I was just thinking, if every bank is running their own currency, they could even be doing this on cryptocurrency as well. I mean, granted, it's, it's something where you made the comment, it's got to be backed by gold or some kind of uh, tangible resource. But... I don't see why this couldn't all be um, quantified electronically. And I was thinking this would be a, a, actually quite a boon for the financial technology or fintech sector to uh, have re- real-time exchange information. If I'm at the first bank of what, whatever and I want to buy something, okay, what, what's the actual you know nominal exchange? I, I could see where you might have a theoretical um, exchange currency. Yep. Where whereas you have you have like a U.S. Treasury dollars, but nobody actually gets those issued. It's just for a, a benchmark. Yeah, it's just a you basket.
0: E- yeah, have have it have a national basket. Yeah. Oh, that that could be done so easily by sovereign nation. Every every itty bitty little teeny tiny bank, and they'd all by def- definition be little itty bitty teeny tiny. They would be reporting to a database in real time, and thus you could see you could see the basket of a given city you could see the basket of a given state you could see a basket of a given nation and oh yeah absolutely it's there's so many robust possibilities here and um the the truth is is when you go to these massively um conglomerated paradigms. not only is it a recipe for pol- political disaster and, you know, abuse of power and so forth, you're actually taking opportunities off the table in in a in a huge way. Um, we're just leaving all kinds of possibilities on the table by disqualifying the 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 small model, the subsidiarity model, which is exactly where we need to be going, but it's the opposite of where we're going.
1: Well it also isolates risk too if you've got exactly. somebody making making bad bets or or doing something risky and it implodes in their face. Uh yeah, it might be bad for people holding the currency of that bank, but then again there could be a deposit insurance scheme. Exactly. In there.
0: Something like the, like the FDIC would actually be feasible and would work because I mean this is this is one of the things that you know years ago when in the in the MF Global days, and when I was still a commodity broker and all of this, and I was doing all these interviews with, um, you know, all these different financial outlets and stuff. One of the drums that we were all beating is people you have to understand, FDIC, a few years ago, the FDIC had nothing. They had they had no money whatsoever. It was so bad that what they had to do, I can't remember how many years, but they put out an emergency decree, and every bank had to pay in advance, like three, four, five years worth of uh, premiums in advance, because the FDIC was completely busted. You look at how many, how much, um, and I can't remember. I can't remember the figure anymore. How many trillion? are on deposit in banks in the United States and then you look at the balance sheet of the FDIC and they only had like like a quarter of a billion or something like that. I mean it was it was just it was a joke. It was a complete joke. What happens when Citibank goes down, when J.P. Morgan goes down, when Wells Fargo goes down? What what, what do you do when something that big goes down? FDIC is, is a punchline to a bad joke at that point. However, if you go back to the model of subsidiarity, only teeny tiny single location banks. If one bank fails because psychopath John Corzine is running it or whatever, you can have a model whereby there is actually a deposit insur- insurance corporation that would have more than enough funds to cover the failure of one little itty bitty bank. That wouldn't be a problem at all. Where again, y- the bigger you get, the more completely unfeasible all of these things become. And you know, so many people out there were just so blinded by, oh well, my bank, it, every teller window. Every single teller window has that gold bronze colored plastic um, notification thing with the logo FDIC. Every deposit of this bank is guaranteed up to one hundred thousand dollars. F- yeah, really, Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. You're gonna you're gonna guarantee Wells Fargo up to a hundred a hundred thousand per account. Y- you would have to be. I-, I. There's no way that you can be a reasonable human being and believe that that's true. There's just no way, um, but so many people are so ignorant and they say, well, it's right there in writing, so it must be true, it's like, do do the math, do the math, there isn't that much money. Um, and then heaven, heaven forfend that there would be multiple big bank failures simultaneously. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at. So you got to get it back down to the small the small town, not even small town, but just small bank, small neighborhood bank. And also the other thing about that, is if the president of the bank turns out to be a a ish psycho, well, people people know exactly who to go after. You know, um, that's that's kind of one of the good things about subsidiarity too. Is you know you know who's in charge, you know who needs to answer for what, um, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, you don't have these nameless, faceless, completely anonymous, mega, mega, mega oligarchs, and nobody knows who they are. Someone made a really good point to me. We're having a discussion about, you know, back in the old days in Europe, when there were these royal families, and there would be all this pomp, and these people would dress up, and they'd have these parades, and, and you know, the king, or whoever, or the grand duke, or whatever he is, he's wearing some ermine cape and he's got some huge bejeweled thing on his head and the point was made one of the reasons why they did things like that is because the people then knew because obviously there's no television or photography or anything but the people knew by sight who who you went after and let's be honest if it came to it who you needed to kill if your if your government if your kingdom becomes a tyranny you know exactly who to go after you know who the king is you know who the grand duke is you know who the doge is or whatever paradigm you're in that's why those people were dressed up and there was all that ceremony and pomp and circumstance now compare that to today who's running the world Well, I'll tell you, probably the five most powerful people genuinely running the world could walk down the street of any major city, certainly any city in the United States, and nobody would have any idea who they are by sight. They would just blend completely in. They're not on the Internet. Their pictures aren't out there. Nobody knows who these are who these people are who are running the European Central Bank, who are running, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, they, They live completely hidden and in complete anonymity. And so, you know, there's all of this American shaking your fist and raging against the notions of nobility, aristocracy, you know, pomp, pomp and ceremony with regards to these sorts of things. But if you look at it in context now, you realize that this, in fact, this demythologizing of all of these public offices, this is absolutely key to the Freemasonic agenda, because these people who are at the top of this running running the world in terms of politics and in terms of economics, these people are completely anonymous. That is why the Freemasonic system rails against any sort of, um, certainly monarchy, but any sort of very, very publicly visible leadership with pomp and circumstance. Um, because they want to be able to just totally blend in like Satan, their father.
1: So that means that Jerome Powell isn't really running things. Who? <laughs> He's the chairman of the Federal Reserve right now. Is
0: he really? Oh, see, I'm just so.
1: And to be honest, <sighs> I had to look it up. I, I did not know that off the top of my head. I couldn't tell you who the other uh, regional governors are either. I That's never been my wheelhouse. So
0: I figured that, um, what's his name? Uh, Ran it for years and years. Oh, oh! I- Bernanke?
1: No, 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 no. no before um, him,
0: before him. Oh, what's his name? <laughs> ah! Oh, oh, Greenspan. Greenspan. Thank you. I just want to say it's a really Jewish name. It's a really Jewish name. Greenspan. Greenspan. I figured the is he still alive? I figured the the body of Greenspan was still running things.
1: Uh, he's younger than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think he's still alive.
0: Well, that's, that's. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, yeah, he's ninety-two. Yes, he is still alive. Yep.
1: Well, one of the one of the things you mentioned is that uh, talking about if you're if if uh, Wells Fargo went down, how would your your savings or how how would your accounts be safe? And one of the thoughts I had since I've you know, I was in the Navy and we've got some pretty darn big ships. You'd think that if you poke a hole anywhere in one of the big ships, the whole thing goes down. Except that it's all compartmentalized. And you can seal off compartments to keep that the area of flooding localized, and then go fix it later. Uh-huh or as soon as possible, why not have a situation where for a bank, once it grows in size, say, I don't know, I'm just going to be very arbitrary about this and say for every billion dollars yeah. in assets on, on hold, yep. it has to be compartmentalized into its own banking unit. Yep. So you could have a Chase Manhattan type bank or whatever they're called this week. I, I don't keep track of the banks. Uh, you, have, you could have something on the scale of a Bank of America where it's got hundreds of billions of dollars of assets, but for, but that's going to be perhaps 100 uh, compartmentalized uh, groups and that's all going, all of the consumer banking will be separate from the business banking, which will be separate from the uh, investment banking that, so that individual units could go down. And yes, yeah, so it, it, it might be a, a something you'd notice on the B of A stock, but it doesn't take the whole company down, much less the whole financial system. That's
0: already what the paradigm is. And what those companies are called is they're called bank holding companies. And so there, there is one super bank holding company that is, the owner of then multiple banks. Yeah, that's already what the situation is and that also exists with brokerage houses because if I'm not mistaken when MF Global happened there was an overarching parent company. It was like it was called MF Holdings if I'm not mistaken. And so the domestic the US futures brokerage company of MF Global was a was a separate legal entity from the MF Global company in London, but both were owned by the same the same overarching company, which was called MF Holdings, I want to say, or something like that. So yeah, people that that's already the workaround that they've done. Um, I think you look at um, making bank holding companies illegal again, and everything has to be 100% separate. Now, at that point, you would say, okay, there might be, you know, one head of a family, and each son maybe owns, you know, he's got five sons. And so each son has his own completely separate bank. But the father of each of the five sons is is calling the shots. Yeah, yeah, it, it would probably revert to something like that. But it's a lot easier to keep to keep control of and keep, you know, keep your eye on dealing with something like that rather than dealing with these companies that have, you know, billion dollar, 10 billion dollar, hundred billion dollar and multiple hundred billion dollar, um, balance sheets and so forth. It's, you, you just can't, you can't control it.
1: Okay. I was, I, I was thinking about it a little bit differently, but i don't know maybe we can develop that on a future podcast mm-hmm. because this one has to be a little bit short yes <laughs> we're recording this as a rare middle of the day uh, over over lunch break uh recording because i'm going to be out of town for the next uh week or so uh going out to well by the time this publishes it's not gonna be a huge surprise i'll be in san diego so uh we'll probably record something again next week and uh, a more normal length one uh until then uh do you have anything else you wanted to add
0: Uh, No, just keep praying thank all my benefactors and all my supporters as always and uh, thank you friend for all of your support
1: The email address for the podcast where you can send feedback comments, suggestions or a redefinition of compartmentalized banking If that sounds like (laughs) something you want to bite off the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz Masses for Anne's benefactors every single day and once every week uh, A requiem mass for everyone who died in the previous week. Please pray for the priests who are offering these masses They definitely need our prayers And it's been a little while since we've um, named the benefactors of of the podcast, the supporters of uh, Super Nerd Media, because the Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. And if you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, uh, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more details. And I wanted to thank Donald, PMJ, Marianne, Laura, Charles, and Paul, uh, who submitted via PayPal. And Mark and Mark, the same person twice, um, who sent something through the P.O. box, Uh, he sent one for super nerd media and one for sister servants of mary and so they were still getting some donations for them and they are pleased and surprised and and uh grateful to be getting the uh continued uh, support and donations so thank you very much to mark twice and uh i'll I'll send a note to uh the people who who have been sending something to the po box or just look at super nerd media i'm changing the address on that one i'm going to drop the po box and go to a different mail drop so keep an eye on that okay Uh, Matthew 1720
0: Matthew 1720 initiative fast full fast twice a week I'm doing Tuesdays and Fridays and the intention is that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-pope and the whole thing be nullified that Pope Benedict the 16th Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only one and only living Pope since April of 2005 that Bergoglio repent revert to Catholicism die in a state of grace and someday achieve the beat. Vision, and that likewise, Ratzinger repent of what he has done. Pope Benedict repent of what he has done. Die in a state of grace, and also someday achieve the beatific vision. Nothing less will do. Our Lady of uh, Our Lady, Undoer of Knots, pray for us.
1: And until until next time, I am Super Nerd, and
0: I am Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless.